This is a different podcast. A bunch of different things came together the way they came together, and that's why we're going to give you a bunch of different things today. We'll be back hardcore football on Monday with Dilfer. we get Danny Pinnell next week as well. But today, the plan is we're going to talk with Steve Mariucci about today's young quarterbacks, the problems with the Chiefs, some of that West Coast influence. But more importantly, we're getting Jim Drunkenmiller stories. All right? Second part of the podcast, Scott Galloway. Uh, this guy is a professor at NYU. He's an incredibly successful entrepreneur. He's very opinionated. Some of the stuff you might like, some of the stuff you might not like. I just really enjoy his podcast. And uh, the highlight, perhaps, because it's kind of cool that this came together the way it did. We're doing a fashion life advice. And that's with John Elliott, uh, who's the founder of John Elliott Clothing. It's a very cool L.A.-based brand. Uh, I don't know that much about it until recently, and I've been a fan of it, and we ended up knowing each other, and there you go, boom, he came on. We're going to answer some questions and hear his story. So very different, uh, and will be hardcore two hours of football on Monday. Enjoy. It's Ryan Russillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older. 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. $5 doesn't get you what it used to get you. I asked for change the other day. The guy gave me back four. Introducing Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps. In your choice of ranch, barbecue, honey mustard, and a bonus flavor called Incredible Value. Ever heard of it? You can't taste it, but boy, is it sweet. Arby's two for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. Steve Mariucci, longtime NFL coach and, of course, NFL Network uh, joins us. I want to get to a little story time with you, coach, a little bit later. But let's start with kind of the current day stuff. We just saw Kansas City again in a Monday night game. I know you'll spend a ton of time on NFL Network, but what do you see from a team that doesn't even look close to what they've looked like the last three years? <laughs> you know, Andy Reid and I uh, coached together at Green Bay, right? Mike Holmgren shoved us in this one room. We were young coaches. We were all young Gruden and all kinds of young coaches on that staff. And Andy was coaching the tight ends and I was coaching the quarterbacks. He goes, you guys just share this office. And uh, so we kind of grew up, we cut our teeth together, <laughs> learning this West Coast offense. And, um, and then, of course, everybody goes their own way with this offense, depending on what your talent is on your team, your quarterback, how many receivers you have, you know, we all kind of tweak things. And every time I interview Andy, I go, Andy, I don't know you anymore. What is this offense you guys are running? He's got the jet sweeps and the shuffle passes and the backward throws and then we got all this stuff. And he goes, it's the same offense, Mooch. It's the same offense. <laughs> oh, my God. But he's got a quarterback that's a magic man. We've all seen it for a few years now. And then all of a sudden, it's, all of a sudden it's, it, that, that magic is just not happening for him as consistently. And... um 
that was a very necessary win the other night against the Giants, right? Man, can you, I mean, it's 17 all in the fourth quarter, and I'm going, oh, my God, Andy, come on, you can't lose this game because they already were in last in their division in a real tough division. But they, they to me, they, uh, they still have really good coaches and really good players, so if you're going to fix something, they, they're good enough to do that. Now, what do they have to fix? They have to fix their defense. It, it had, they, they had given up over 27 points six times. It's hard to win. It's hard to keep outscoring teams all the time. So that's why I think Patrick Mahomes keeps taking chances because he knows he has to score at least a 30-burger to, to, to win, right? And then all-new offensive line, all-new from that last year's team. And that doesn't just, boom, they're good. I mean, they have to grow up together. They're a couple of freshmen and sophomores, and then there's, there's, some, there's some youngsters, and they'll get better as the time goes on. So, and then Patrick Mahomes has just turned it over way more than he ever has, and he's got to calm that down. Uh, and he will. He's very capable. Um, so they, they've got a lot of things. And um, anyway, they're human, right? As well, all of a sudden, we were realizing the Chiefs are, you know, if you play well against them and they fart around a little bit, they're human and you can beat them. Can I ask you kind of a, a nerdier question about the West Coast stuff? Because I, I know that I don't understand the variations. You know, I didn't, I didn't play the position. I wasn't coached by any of you guys. But I am always interested in kind of learning how how it evolves. Can you take me from like learning about it with Holmgren and then how you decided to adapt it to like a Steve Young and the guys you had on the outside for San Francisco? Like how does that process work and, and be as technical as you want with it? Um, because okay. I, I don't think we ever get that stuff. Yeah, I'd love to. It's, um, it's nine 37. I got all day. All right. So we can just talk about this. <laughs> I won't do that to you, but I didn't invent the West coast offense. Okay. He was at the 49ers. And he learned it from, well, Bill Walsh wasn't there. I built, he worked for George Seifert, but the, 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 the system was in place. He, he did work for Bill, too. And, and um, every team runs concepts of the West Coast offense. And the West Coast offense isn't just an offense. It's a, it's a way of doing things. It's a, the West Coast offense, when we learned it, it was, this is how you practice. This is how you install. This is how you, you, uh, you eat, you meet, you have days off. This is the routine that the West Coast offense, Bill Walsh, who really got it from Paul Brown, but he made it win Super Bowls when he took it his way, right? I mean, Paul Brown really, I guess, invented the West Coast offense. Uh, and it's evolved into different things. But um, everybody runs concepts of it. It's not as prevalent nowadays, Ryan, anymore because, gosh, way back in the day, when you look at film, Jerry Rice was down in a three-point stance. The receivers were down. There was two backs in the backfield most of the time. And, heck, they were in split backs or brown or red. They weren't in eye. They weren't in single back. So there was a fullback. Have you heard of a fullback? Some teams don't have – half the teams don't even have fullbacks. It's a, it's a dinosaur, right? They're not even – you get about two fullbacks drafted each year, uh, and there's you know they're just people don't use fullbacks anymore, and so um, it's evolving into this shotgun single back sling it kind of thing because rules say we should, and and um, so the West Coast offense is well you might name things two and three jet and the dig the numbering system and the flanker drive and the way you call plays 
may remain the same for Kansas City and everybody else. All these different wrinkles happen. Uh, Joe Montana or Steve Young never threw the ball out there horizontally on bubble screens. Didn't happen. You didn't have it in your game. Pat Mahomes last week was 15 for 15 on passes that didn't go past the line of scrimmage. Did you hear what I said? (laughs) Didn't go past the line of scrimmage. Why? Because you can do that now. When I coached and when Favre played, you didn't, you couldn't do that. You couldn't be blocking when you when the ball was in the air. You couldn't run those screens. Linemen couldn't be downfield at all. Now they have RPOs where the linemen are blocking a run, or you throw the screen out there, um, or the slant, and the, and they're they're lenient with how far linemen can be downfield. The rules are much different. That means throw the darn ball more often and throw it horizontally which means more yards, more points, uh, less interceptions. It's, it, the rules have changed. The West Coast offense is here, but it's, it's not as prevalent as it used to be because of the rule changes. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the 15 for 15 thing because I used to, you know, when I was younger, you'd be like, all right, 60% for completion percentage. Like, that's the line if you're below it. And now you could be last in the league <laughs> at 60%. Yeah, you, I, mean, if, I mean, if you look at the Hall of Famers, <laughs> A lot of them, the Hall of Fame quarterbacks, a lot of them had just about as many interceptions as touchdowns, okay? Now, now if your ratio, your TD interception ratio isn't like five to one, you're an idiot, okay? Because you just don't go back and throw the ball down the field in the coverage as often. You're always throwing it out in space and a lot, lot safer passes. Is there a younger quarterback from this group? And I, I don't want to feel like I'm leaving out everybody, but I think there's there's certainly, whether it's a Josh Allen, a Kyler Murray, Lamar, um, Herbert, maybe even Burrow, I know I could probably miss. Is there anyone that you watch every Sunday that you like better than the rest? No. we. I like a lot of them. I, I, I'd like, I, I watch, my mindset is, is the league in good shape with quarterbacks because, because I've, I've been in football all my life, and the health of our league, the health of our sport, really depends on having really good quarterbacks to watch and to enjoy, right? And while the NFL is, you know, retiring a lot of its great quarterbacks, we just saw Drew Brees jump into the booth, and, uh, you know, and Phillip Rivers is gone, and, and uh, soon it'll be Ben, he'll be gone, and... Uh, you know, Aaron Rodgers will play a little bit longer, but but the, the the great ones, the Mannings and all those guys, you know, gone. Brady will well, he'll be there another three, four, five decades. <laughs> I don't know, but but it's good to know that our league is in good shape with young superstars. The Patrick Mahomes is a superstar. Justin Herbert will be a superstar, and Lamar Jackson will be a superstar. Yes, he's running a different kind of offense. Who cares? He's fun to watch. People like watching what they do, right? And so, the league, and here's the difference. Our young quarterbacks coming up now are so much better equipped to play well in the NFL or even in college or even in high school than they were when Brett Favre was playing. Brett Favre was a quarterback for his dad and he would pitch the ball to running back and he'd lead the sweep around there. And, uh, you know, he would throw the ball 10 times a game. And he never had seven on sevens. And he never had elite 11 quarterback camps and quarterback guru coaches like tutors we have for geography class. I mean, these young quarterbacks are getting trained now at young ages. 
the Manning Academy. It's really good for the development of our young quarterback. So by the time they get to college, they've thrown a bazillion times in camps and in high school and in the summers. And then by the time they get to the NFL, they've, uh, they're, they're pretty much ready to do this. Now, there's a learning curve. You're, you're seeing it with Justin Fields. And, you know, you know there's a learning curve because the game is new. The defenses can be new. Um, but, but believe me, they have a real head start compared to the quarterbacks 10, 20, 30 years ago. Team loses. You know, it's, it's just a rule on Monday. When you lost as a head coach, oh, these guys don't know what they're doing. They're not recalling the right plays. Uh, I think there's, there's too much of that. Do you, though, do you see situations on a Sunday when you're at NFL Network and you guys are getting ready to do whatever you're doing? Do you have Sundays where you feel like an offensive play call staff is not doing the right stuff for the quarterback? Uh, you want me to second guess somebody. Okay, so I, I'm I, not doing I mean, this for the gut you thing. I, so, I, I, I honestly am like, I want to, you know, an intelligent, like how often it happens because we do it all the time. I imagine you well, obviously do it way less. The thing, first of all, there's nobody sitting at home on the couch that knows what the heck they're talking about. Okay. Because even, even if I call plays for 30 years, I don't know what the game plan is. I don't know the talent level of all my players and who's gimpy and who's like, you know, and, and, you know, what, what I'm trying to set up for the next series or what, what, okay. Once in a while we'll say, Hmm, he's going for it on fourth down. We see more of that now. Right. Um, so sometimes I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have, I just punt the ball down there. I got a good punter sticking on the five yard line, make him go the distance. Or a lot of guys are going for two when they're not, when the chart doesn't say go for two, some, Back in the day, I keep saying that, I, I don't know what that means, but that means you, you would pull out your two-point chart in the fourth quarter. You wouldn't even have it out. Well, God, now guys are going for two after the first touchdown. It's like, what did you do that for? Well, they want to shake it up a little bit, right? And so there, there's just different things that are very criticizable that are, that are part of their strategy. They want to, sometimes guys want to be unorthodox and do, do something different that's predictable. And so... Um, I don't, I don't get into the, the should have done. I do, I do dislike this. Here's what I do. Here's this sticks in my craw. It's third. Now I just told you how the game is evolving into a shotgun, right? right. Uh, one back or no back kind of offense more times than not drives me nuts when it's third and one and the quarterbacks in shotgun. It's like, Okay, you should have had a fullback and get under the center to at least have the threat of a quarterback sneak. And then you get all your runs available to you that they have to defend instead of just defending one back on an inside zone. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, or on the goal line. Goal line offense and short yardage offense. Some of these teams, they really don't have emotional personnel with the two tight ends and get big and smash it up in there. And it's, it's safer to be under the center. Tom Brady, you know how good he is on quarterback sneak? He's the good. best. And, but when you're in shotgun, he's not the best. It does, it doesn't, it does, you don't have to defend it. And so, so that, that's one thing. I second guess that all the time. I hate that. I go under the center and, and have one back or two, and then you have more runs available for short yards you go on. <laughs> Perfect transition then. Do you stay in touch with Mark Edwards? Because he is one of my all-time favorites, your fullback out of Notre Dame. Yeah, he, I don't stay in touch with him. He's one of 
You do you like talk to him? Is he like no? I I loved him in college. I loved him in the pros. I don't know. Look, you're right. The fullback, endangered species list here. I know. I loved him. They drafted him in '97, and he was one of those guys. Fullbacks they have to be. They have to be a role player too, you know. They can't just be I'm a fullback. Give me a neck brace, and and I'm gonna you know block linebackers. They they've got to be able, especially in the West Coast offense, when you um, throw the ball. The fullback Tom Rathman had a lot a lot of catches, right? You got to be able to catch. You got to be able to block. Yes, you got to be able to run. You got to be able to play special teams. I mean, you got because you're not on the field every snap. And so, yeah, Mark Edwards was a beauty. Let's, hey, Mark, if you're watching this, uh, uh, give us a call. I'd like to catch up. He's a great guy. Did you, did you remember anything from his draft? Did, he, did you guys have a draft meeting with him? Heck no. Um, when we, my first draft in San Francisco, we only drafted three guys. Gray Clark, Stanford tight end who just passed away, rest his soul. Um, Jim Druckenmiller. From Virginia Tech, quarterback, 26th pick, 28th. By the way, I remember Drunken Miller because didn't he make the legendary draft tape where he was running through walls and wheelbarrowing brick, right? And up the big, big tire, flipping it over. That was his 40-yard dash. He flipped the tire. And I love Drunk, man. Drunk? <laughs> Give me a good Drunken Miller story. Yeah, Drunk. Drunk. <laughs> hey, so my first game, Drunk. <laughs> we play, I think, our first game. It was on the road. It was at Tampa. And the, since he's a rookie, the quarterbacks made him get a pizza for the plane. <laughs> Idiot. Well, he goes to the Domino's or something. He goes in there and orders a, I don't know, a large pizza or whatever. Well, you don't have any control over how fast it's going to take in there, Okay. Well, he's late for the plane, all right? So I'm in SFO going, all right, everybody on? Uh, no, your first-round quarterback's not here yet. And and Steve Young and those guys are laughing like, yeah, we had him go get a pizza. I said, get out of here. We're leaving. Heck with him. We left him. We left him. He got to the airport with a pizza. <laughs> Nobody was there to eat it, so he ate the whole thing. So then, then – so then he had to catch a flight. He had to buy a flight. You know, some guys would have just went home and said, hey, they don't want me. He, he paid for a flight, like one-way ticket. I'd catch the next flight uh, to Tampa, and he got there. You think he got any grief? Oh, my God. Did you want to punish him, or did you know that it was Steve and those other guys' fault? Like, what, how do you handle that? I'm trying to think of what I did. I think he was humiliated to a point where I, I, I don't know. I might have fined him. You know, probably fined him, you know. <laughs> but then Druck, I mean, and he had just shown up because we were tight with the salary cap. We couldn't sign him right away. And so Steve ends up getting hurt. And Druck had a start against the Rams. Druck has Druck has the highest winning percentage for starters in the history of the National Football League, 102 years. He's one and oh. He beat the Rams, man, and and uh, and so <laughs> Kirk Reynolds, the SID, comes up um, when we're playing the Rams. Goes, Coach, uh, just so you know, we've beaten the. This is my first year. He goes, we've beaten the Rams thirteen times in a row. I went, 
Oh, we got Druck playing quarterback, man, because our backup court. See, Steve got hurt. Uh, he got he got a concussion at Tampa, and then Jeff Brom, who's coaching now, he got hurt too. Our backup quarterback. So now it's Druck starting at the Rams over in St. Louis, and uh, did he win? Darn right, he won. He, he threw uh, two jet. Dino, why shallow cross? Boom to JJ Stokes for a touchdown. And then Garrison Hurst had a 25 yard touchdown run. And we beat those guys for the 14th time in a row. And that was draft. That was Druck's only start. I love that guy. And then we cut him eventually, right? But we, from our quarterback meetings, we would, we would call him at home. Druck, what are you doing? <laughs> Hi, guys. What are you doing? I mean, he was so much fun. Everybody loved him. Everybody loved him. Hey, we need a pizza. Oh, I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I just, I remember because he and I are about the same age. And I remember being like, did you guys hear about this video that he made of him just breaking stuff around his house and flipping things over? And then they were like, all right, the Niners took him in the first round. And you're right. He played in one game. Did he throw? He threw for 500 yards against Nebraska. I mean, the guy was a beast. I mean, he was, uh, he wasn't, he wasn't our kind of quarterback. He was a big, strong pocket guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. We needed a guy to run around like a crazed dog, like Steve Young, you know? And and then eventually it was Jeff Garcia, who's that athletic kind of mobile, you know, play out there quite a bit. No, it makes sense, too. And it's also, you know, as we're kind of talking about today's offense is why so many teams are better equipped to do this because they don't want, you know, a guy that doesn't look like Steve Young or, or Jeff Garcia, both really mobile guys. Um, let me Let me ask you about Steve. I got to know Steve you know, whatever, casually, however I would, working at ESPN as long as I did. What was it like to coach Steve Young? Steve Young's nuts, okay? So I, my, son, <clears throat> my son lives in Greenwich, Connecticut. So my wife and I went out there to visit them and our two grandsons last week. So every time I go out there, I walk around, it's three, four blocks, and I film Steve Young's house. That's where he grew up. Steve, I'm at your house again. Look at this. I think they painted it. Look at this. And then, and then I'd go to his high school. Hey, Steve, there's a little wooden sign over there. Can you give the school some money so they can put another sign up or a, a scoreboard or something? I give him grief. And, and then he texts back, oh, uh, yeah, that's where I learned how to ride a unicycle. And that's where I had a you know a prom date or whatever. I mean, the, the guy's nuts. And he, he's a legend back there in Greenwich, Connecticut, man. I mean, he, he did it all. And so, um, and he lives right up the street here, you know, from me in Northern California. And he, he tries to stay busy with Monday night football, the, the, the pregame stuff. But he's brilliant. Guys, the guy is like on a different planet. It's hard to hold a conversation with him. Steve, how you doing today? Well, it's like, okay, okay, enough. Too much information. But he, when we would prepare for a game, Okay, so he thinks it's no big deal when I mention this. I think it's crazy. The the offensive meeting room has boards, uh, grease boards all the way around it, and all the game plan is written on the board. Okay, two jet flanker drive with uh, different formations in this play with different formations and personnel groups. And this is uh, base. This is nickel. This is short yards. Goal line, red zone, all that stuff. Everything's on the board. 
Saturday morning, we would come in for a review meeting, me, offense coordinator, quarterback coach, and we would review it with the quarterback. It's pretty typical. that. And then if there's something that he felt was under practice, he would say, let's not do that this week. I don't like that play. Um, or give it another week or whatever. Um, he'd sit in the middle of the room in a chair with his hair all messed up in a T-shirt, same shirt he wore all week. And he would just go around the room without looking, and he would recite every play in order, everything that was written on the board, like it's a beautiful mind. It was like, you know, all right, we're going to run this run play from red right and I right and then I right slot left right. And we're going to run the next play. And he would not make a mistake. And we would be looking at each other like, something's wrong with this guy, man. I mean, who, who does this? Who memorizes the board? And he's got what it's called rote memory. I have no idea what that is. And, and, um, and he was just he was brilliant. Brilliant. I've never seen anything like it. Was he then, because, you know, sometimes I think football – guys you know sometimes you just want hey look just tackle the guy in red all right we don't want you thinking too much you know rookie sometimes all that kind of stuff i mean steve young's a hall of famer he's great he's one of my favorite players to watch that era like it's it's a time in my life like i remember the 98 playoff game against the packers in the throw and to and the whole thing i remember exactly where i was i didn't root for the niners growing up for whatever reason i just really liked that team and i remember being happy about it and was so pumped i was in this shitty apartment by myself in vermont being like yeah all right niners like they pull it off because it was just an awesome game but was he somebody you could bring to the sideline clearly you had that relationship but was there ever a time where you're like hey man like we don't need you to think this much about this upcoming third and seven what was that like tell you what it was like um um uh, stick around i got a picture on the wall i want to show you okay don't go anywhere we are holding as steve mariucci leaves his decorated office okay you still with me i'm still there i don't know can you see this yeah it's a picture of steve young autographed he's putting his hand on your shoulder looking at you in the sideline correct well he's laughing at me i don't know what he's doing and then you got greg knapp there who just greg knapp who just got hit on his bike he got killed just before the season started um he was coaching with the jets anyway so that's uh during a timeout okay okay you say well why are you showing me that one there would be times I would, you know, you know, some quarterbacks, they all just, they, 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 they have an opinion. They have too many opinions sometimes and they want this play or that play or, you know, but most of them are pretty darn good. I remember on more than one occasion, we, we call timeout and it's third down and seven or eight, like you mentioned. And I go, all right, Steve, here's what we're thinking. It's either going to be this play blah, 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 or this play. What do you like? He goes, I don't care. Just call the play. I'll make it work. That's how he was. He didn't give a damn what you call. Just call a play. And if it's there, I'll take it. If not, I'll run. I'll scramble. I'll improvise. Whatever that is, call a play. I mean, that's what he was. Now, I, I, will, I, will, I will tell you there was one play where he, that, that wasn't the case. I called, I called a screen pass. Uh, backed up like on our four yard line and he went back against the Raiders and he went back, back, back. And he was go- into the end zone, into the end zone. And he was getting blitzed and he had to, uh, he, he, this is why he goes, please don't ever call that play again. I'm there. 
I go, okay, fine. Um, because he didn't, he didn't want a smart guy. He didn't want to take a sack because it's a safety. He didn't want to throw it away, intentional grounding, because it's a safety. It's a blitz, so you're, somebody's going to hold, and it's going to be a safety. And it's like I could still ke- you know, complete this ball and we could get tackled for a safety. And that was a great call, man. It would have fooled him. It would have went 99 yards. But he, then he got hit, and he got flung into the goalpost. <laughs> And he comes back, he goes, don't, please don't call that play anymore from down there. I go, okay, fine. Um, but, but, but otherwise he was like, he was, he was not that he was indifferent. He just, you didn't even have to call timeout. It's just, just call a play. I'll make it work. Okay. I'll end on this. Um, what was the dynamic? And I'll give you kind of my summary from the outside, which is, which is very far away. I'm not working in sports. I'm, I'm bartending. I'm finishing up school. And I remember being like, all right, Jerry Rice grew up with him. He's still putting up these huge numbers. And his T.O. guy comes along. And you're like, wait a minute. He has the catch in 98. He has the 20 catch game in 2000. And then I remember that was watching on Jerry this. Rice Day. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I remember, like, whatever people think of T.O. now, I remember kind of the seeds being planted for because I remember seeing, like, some NFL or it was an ESPN or CBS pregame show. It doesn't matter. They were doing kind of like a visit with this guy who just had 20 catches in a game. And he went to, I think, New York City, and they were at a memorabilia shop, a sporting goods store or whatever, and he couldn't see, he didn't see any T.O. jerseys, and he was pissed about it. And now I've interviewed T.O. a bunch. We've had him in the studio, all these different things. What was that early dynamic like with T.O.? who is playing on the other side of the greatest to ever do it, where you realize the special talent you have that I think eventually knew like, Hey, I don't want to be in anyone's shadow. That's kind of how I saw it from the outside. I don't know if that's right or wrong. So Tio was drafted the year before I got there. He was a third rounder from Chattanooga and he didn't start. He was the third receiver third or fourth receiver because Jerry was the starter and JJ Stokes was the ex. Okay. And uh, so I think T.O. had 30 catches or something, 30 some catches like that. So he got his feet wet as a rookie. So then I took the job. And so first game at Tampa, the game that Jim Druckenmiller missed, all right, or missed the flight, Jerry Rice blew his knee out. Well, Steve Young, got hurt too in that game. My first game, Steve Young got a concussion at 12th play and Jerry Rice blew his knee out. Warren Sapp got both of those guys um, in the second quarter. And then uh, Jerry was out for most of the year. All right. So T.O. took his place at Z as the starter. And then so J.J. Stokes and T.O. were the starters that whole year. And uh, we won 11 games in a row after that. But that's when he really became, became a, a, a bona fide starter in the league when Jerry Rice got hurt. So then when Jerry, Jerry came back on a Monday night and re-hurt his leg on a touchdown pass against Denver Broncos, Steve Atwater blew him up on a touchdown catch. Um, that was it for him. But then T.O. even said to me at the, after, the, after the season, when we were starting the next year when Jerry Rice was coming back, Tio said this to me. I couldn't believe it. He said, Coach, Jerry was the starter. He's been for 15, 20 years, whatever years, 700 years over there. Put him back as the starter. And JJ was the starter. I'll go back to being the third receiver. And, and as the zebra guy, that's our third receiver. And we would have T.O. in the slot or as our third receiver. Nowadays, they have a little water bug kind of guy usually in the slot. We had T.O. in the slot. Um, 
it was talk about a mismatch with linebacker, anybody. Um, so I thought that was really good on his part to just offer that like, Hey, I mean, I'll, I'll go back to my role as the third guy. I'm, I'm good friends with JJ and, and Jerry. Um, what we did was, and I really did appreciate that. What we did was we started them at X. And then when, when uh, we went to three receivers, JJ then went to X and Teal went over to the, uh, to the, the zebra position. But anyway, so that's, uh, when Jerry Rice came back, we, we had pretty good darn offense. In fact, we were the only offense, right? We're the only offense ever in the Super Bowl era to have the most gross pass yards, gross yards passing, and most rushing yards, both, both at the, in the same year. It's never happened before. I think the t- it did happen like 1946 Bears. I'm not even counting that. But um, it was a pretty good offense with those guys all on the field. That's an awesome story. Um, and you know what? I loved watching those teams play. I, I, I don't know what it was about those late 90s, early 2000s. It was a lot of fun in your six years there. Uh, let's do this again, Steve. I appreciate it, man. Hey, thanks for having me on. All right. Where, where am I looking? You in your like bedroom back there or what? I'm in Manhattan Beach. This is, uh, this is one of the bedrooms we don't use that much. So. Manhattan Beach. Well, go for a jog on the beach over there for me, okay? Run a mile for me, will you? I will. You can see Steve every Sunday on NFL Network's NFL Game Day morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. Thanks a lot, Coach. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. You know what I hate? Hate is after lunch, there's all this time before dinner. I hate it. So I'm always like, do I do this? It's like, you should. Gain season. Throw in a little something extra. An appetizer that just starts hours before dinner. It just gets so frustrating when there aren't great options. That's where Arby's new two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps come in. Available in your choice of ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for that afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Food buddies. Arby's two for five dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. La Quinta by Wyndham has everything you need for your next business trip. From free high-speed Wi-Fi to fitness centers to free bright side breakfast with fresh waffles, eggs, and more, book direct at LQ.com. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Scott Galloway is an interesting guy. Uh, he's a professor of marketing at NYU Stern. He's a founder, entrepreneur. Um, he's a, an author, and he's a, a great podcast host, The Prof G Show, uh, something I've been able to check out. And I got to admit, Scott, I haven't been like a longtime consumer, but the more I kept seeing you pop up in different stuff, I was like, man, I really, I really like this guy. And as somebody who's done this a long time, your monologues on podcasts are really good. That are not easy to do, and I'm I'm very impressed. Alcohol helps, Ryan. That's the key. That's the key. <laughs> Start <laughs> letting it go. Say, me, Ray Charles. Every great artist. Every great artist. Anyways, uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I, I know you've told the story probably more times than you want to, so I'll try to summarize it. Not a great student, UCLA. Mm-hmm. MBA at Cal, a lot of uh, assistance from the government. Mm-hmm. Where were you as you got your shit together, as you ex- explain? Um, and I kind of related to that because as I stayed in school longer, I was like, hey, this actually isn't that hard if you do more stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> once Ryan, you got, I, where did you grow up and go to school? I don't know much about I, your background. Yeah, I'm from New England. So mm-hmm. Massachusetts to Vermont. Mm-hmm. I went to UVM mm-hmm. and then yeah, I stayed there school. for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I bartended forever. I worked construction and then I got an on-air nice. job with a minor league baseball team. So, Oh, cool. Yeah. You have a great voice. Uh, so yeah, pre your comments. Um, so I'm the, you know, the son of a single immigrant mother, uh, who lived and died a secretary, got into UCLA when they had a 74% admittance rate and I had to apply twice and then rewarded UCLA's judgment with a 2.27 GPA. I uh, lied about my grades, got a job at Morgan Stanley in their analyst program, and then somehow got into Cal. They, you know, the Regents of the University of California took more. You know, I remember the head of admissions calling me and saying, you're not qualified, but you're a native son of California, so we're going to give you another chance. Where I got my shit together was really a function of um, my mom got sick and uh, very close with my mom and came home when I was in graduate school and she was really in a bad way. And I felt very helpless. Um, uh, I couldn't, uh, we were in an HMO, Kaiser, and, you know, it was decent health care, but I remember thinking we needed a second opinion. I didn't know what to do. I felt like they did discharge her from the hospital prematurely. And I just remember thinking, and it sounds very crass, I'm going to be rich. I, I just, I, I, I recognized at that moment that in a capitalist society, your life is more gentle and forgiving uh, when you have money than when you don't. And we didn't have money and we didn't have any contacts. And I remember thinking that it felt very emasculating, quite frankly, that I just couldn't take care of my mom the way that I had felt that she had taken care of me. And so at that moment, I just got very motivated and um, did started doing really well in school and, you know, worked very hard. I, I kind of, I was from the age of 25 to 45 or maybe 25 to 40. I don't remember much other than work. But where I got my shit together was kind of in my mid-20s as a function of wanting to do better for my family. My family was just my mom. Um, and, uh, you know, I would say America, you know, <laughs> the, the world isn't yours for the taking, it's yours for the trying. And I realized I wasn't trying that hard. And also one of the lessons I take away is that uh, our system's kind of set up for two people or two cohorts. I still think uh, education in the U.S. is a transformative experience. It's not for everybody, but it still is a fantastic way to increase your your selection state, your opportunities. You're less likely to have a heart attack, suffer from depression, commit suicide, and much more likely to be in Congress or be the anchor of a TV show or CEO if you do one thing, and that is you get a college degree. And for me, it was transformative, but the two cohorts that have increasingly more access and kind of sequestering everybody else, and I'll, I'll stop talking in about 30 seconds, is uh, the children of rich people, if you're from a top 1% income earning household, you're 77 times more likely to get into an elite university than anybody else. And also kids who are what I call freakishly remarkable and peak at the age of 17. And I can prove to every one of us that 99% of our children are not in the top 1%. And so I'm very passionate about trying to provide the same sort of access to unremarkable 17 and 18 year olds like me at that age uh, that I had. So to me, that is, it's a real passion project. I'm working with the, I just got off, I just got off an email chain with the chancellors of UCLA and Berkeley, but it's something I'm really passionate about is trying to ensure that the drawbridge stays, you know, stays down for, for, for other unremarkable kids. So how do you do that then? How do you, how do you pull it off? I think it's a few things. One, um, I think we have to acknowledge that not everyone's going to go to college. And I think we need more apprenticeships and more on-ramps into a middle-class lifestyle. I think companies also need to carve out a certain percentage of their jobs based on skills-based assessment instead of just relying on certification. 
So 10, 20, 40%. And Tesla and Apple are doing this. They've decided they're going to figure out a way to identify kids from not only non-elite schools, but kids who don't have a traditional BA. If you decide that everybody has to have an elite MBA or elite undergraduate degree to go to work for the fastest growing companies in the world, you're going to hire no single mothers. (laughs) You're going to hire less people of color. You're going to hire uh, fewer white kids from flyover states that didn't have any sort of economic opportunity and maybe are in a small town that's really struggling. So um, I think one, apprenticeships to uh, a massive investment in our public schools where two-thirds of kids end up to dramatically expand freshman admission rates. We can grow Salesforce 40% a year, Facebook 30% a year, Google 22% a year, but we can't seem to grow our public universities' freshman seats by more than 1% a year. And we also have to put more pressure on academics, including myself, and say, you are not a luxury brand, you are a public servant. And we need to f- stop this virus of self-aggrandizement and arrogance where we're excited to reject 90% of our applicants. That's tantamount to the head of a homeless shelter bragging that he or she turned away nine and 10 people who shut up last night. So I think it's a change in attitude among universities where uh, professors and administrators need to pull their weight and use a mix of big and small tech to dramatically expand their productivity and their freshman seats. We need to fall back in love with the unremarkables and realize we're not Birkenbacks, but public servants. We need governments to step up and dramatically expand freshman seats and expand opportunities for kids who aren't going to go to college. But you know, there's been a tremendous transfer of wealth from young people to old people the last 30 years. As a percentage of GDP, young people's wealth under the age of 40 has been cut in half. And so it's a multidimensional problem, calls on a lot of factors, but one of those things we need to do is just dramatically expand uh, the on-ramps, both for uh, freshman class size and also for kids who don't end up in college. But I'm working on the I'm working on the university uh, side. Specifically, I'm working with the chancellors of UCLA and Berkeley on a program to try and uh, dramatically expand the number of freshman seats such that, you know, when I applied to UCLA, it was 74% admissions rate. Do you know what it is now, Ryan? It's in the teens. It's 12%. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's just they don't have the capacity to let in unremarkable kids. You have to be this kid who has a patent and is building wells and captain your lacrosse team. We, uh, UCLA got 120,000 applications. 60,000 of them were 4.0s. So uh, for every kid that gets in, there's three kids that don't get in that had perfect grades. So can you imagine the stress that's, I don't, I don't know if you have kids or how old they are, but can you imagine the stress that's placing on households around America? Oh, you got to be, you're out. No UC for you. I mean, it's just the, it's just gotten kind of out of control. And I think our priorities are screwed up. There, there's some second order effects here. I think universities have to be more tolerant of other political viewpoints. We've become, we've made huge progress being more tolerant of people who don't look like us or embracing them, I should say. We've become less tolerant of people who don't think like us. One and a half percent of Harvard's faculty identifies as conservative. So you have roughly 50% of state legislatures that are like, I'm just not going to fund this dogma and this viewpoint that wants to embarrass me or humiliate me on Twitter every day. Uh, Why would I fund that? So uh, universities used to be a place where you could have provocative thought and say offensive things. That was the point. So I think there's a lot of things that uh, we need to change on campus. And I think uh, as a society, we need to reinvest in higher ed. And I think as academics, we need to pull our weight and start teaching more kids and embrace technology. Uh, Everything we do has kind of one aim, and that is how do we reduce our accountability and increase our compensation? Compensation for administrators and higher ed has exploded. 
There's this image that we're all these wonderful, nice people in cardigans giving pens to each other and watching PBS. We're capitalists too. We've adopted this luxury brand model where if we let in fewer and fewer people, we create artificial scarcity, massively explode tuition, and we our endowments grow and we can pay ourselves more. And it's it's got to stop. Uh, I couldn't agree more on that last part. Whenever I've dug into the administrative costs and all the stuff, you're just like, and and I'm, I have another guy on Josh Mitchell who I, I've talked with, you know, who had the debt trap book that came out recently that I thought was terrific. Um, and in my world of sports, it was like, okay, as soon as the TV money came in for college football, it didn't go to anyone else other than the schools and bigger staffs and bigger facilities and all this stuff. And you're just like, okay. And the NCAA would constantly just keep saying, well, there's not enough money to change it and to pay the players. And that's a different topic altogether, but it's a very mm-hmm. similar process in that it's let's charge more to pay ourselves. And that's pretty much it. Um, and, and you're in it. And this is why I appreciate your point of view so much is that you're both allowing like, Hey, here was my advantage growing up, but also now this is the disadvantage that I'm seeing firsthand. So what are some of the things that you see? Like you must, I don't know if it's arguments. I don't know if that many people want to argue with you, Scott, but is your, your boots on the ground to this as far as the entrance into academia in a place like NYU and someone that is so detached from it thinking that they know what the fuck they're talking about? Yeah, but I'm, look, I'm guilty of a lot of this. I, I, I rail on NYU, but I teach there because I like the prestige and the platform. Um, I have tried to walk the walk. I've returned my compensation for the last decade so I can bite the hand that doesn't feed me. And I recognize a lot of academics aren't in position to do that. But, you know, I've been railing against this, this fetishization of luxury uh, for, for, for a while. But you brought up something interesting. And, and I, you're going to forget more about sports than I'm ever going to know. But I went to UCLA when Ed O'Bannon was there. And again, we find all these reasons, we call it purity, you know, oh, the purity of amateur sports. And what ends up happening? You know, the white guy in his 50s makes $4 million a year or $7 million a year coaching. The more ethnically uh, diverse but still older baby boomers at the NC2A in Kansas make really good livings. And the kid who's probably not is going to play a, a ball in Europe for a couple of years but never make any real money. No, we want to maintain purity and not pay pay him or her. It's just everything is just it's just extraordinary bullshit spread over a lens such that we can keep people in their forties and fifties rich, and we use this notion of pure the purity of sports. Athletes, I believe, college athletes should absolutely get paid. The majority of them aren't going to find a way to make a living. Uh, but I it, the I mean, it just gets worse and worse as you peel back the onion. Uh, Harvard. Harvard's endowment is now over $50 billion. If you stacked Harvard's endowments in $100 bills, you'd get nearly, and if they'd have the same return this year, you'd have a stack of $100 bills that's practically to the Kármán line. In other words, the virgin orbital rocket would run into the stack of $100 bills. And yet they've they've only, they're letting in 1,400 freshmen. They could let in 14,000. The head of the admissions department there said we could have tripled our freshman class without sacrificing any quality. And I was like, well, boss, when you're sitting on an endowment that's the GDP of Costa Rica, why wouldn't you? So why do you think I, they won't? Back to the prestige, the luxury brand thing that you were talking about? Once you are in America, once you have a Harvard degree, once you have a UCLA degree, you don't want anyone else in because it makes it makes you feel better about yourself. It makes the degree on your wall more valuable. I mean, how many times have you heard people at a cocktail party or say, I would never get in to UC San Diego if I applied now. And they say it with kind of glee and pride. And it's like, well, guess what, boss? That means your daughter's not getting in. This is not a good thing. 
This is not a good thing. And spring in households across America used to be a nervous but joyous time. Am I going to USC? Am I going to UCLA? Am I going to Berkeley? Or, you know, maybe maybe I'm not a great student, but I'm a good student, so I'm going to go to a good school like UC Boulder. Now it's the season of despair. My kid played by the rules. My kid did really well, worked his or her ass off, had all those tiger mom moments when the whole house came crashing down because of that D because they didn't hand in their homework and they got their shit together, did what they were supposed to do. And the kid gets arbitraged down to a mediocre school who, by the way, is part of this corrupt cartel where we all raise prices in unison, such that the majority of American kids and households are paying a Mercedes price tag for a fucking Hyundai. And we've affected a transfer of one and a half trillion dollars in wealth from middle class households to the endowments and salaries of administrators and faculty because we're preying on the hopes and dreams and the expectation uh, in America that you failed as a parent if you don't get your kids to college. So I think it's a corrupt system. I think it's a morally flawed system. I'm being I am being uh, uh, reductive here. I do think some people have not lost the script. The University of California just announced they're going to try and expand freshman seats by 20,000 people. I'm going to make a pledge to that and get involved. But uh, private universities, some of the universities, including mine at NYU, you know, we've lost the script, Ryan. We're supposed to be higher education. I'm really on a rant now. In my opinion, it's the tip of the spear of America. That's where presidents go. We found the vaccine at universities. We think through civil rights. We think through this is this is America. There's few things we do other than maybe weapons and software better than higher ed in the U.S. We're also really good at superhero films, but we're really good at higher ed. So it's sort of higher ed, where higher ed goes, so goes America. And is this where America is supposed to be? That we identify the freakishly more remarkable and turn them into billionaires? I don't think so. I think America is supposed to be giving everyone a shot to be a millionaire. And uh, unfortunately, Higher ed has morphed from being the greatest upward lubricant of mobility in the history of mankind to the enforcer of the caste system. Where, okay, you got rich parents, fine, you can find your way into USC. Okay, you're freakishly remarkable, we'll let you in because we think you might be a billionaire. That's not what America's about. We don't need more Elon Musk. We just need more people named Ed who have good lives and good households and raise their kids and are good spouses and good community members. It's just like this, it's become this weird hunger games where you live an incredible life or you die trying. I didn't eat breakfast. I'm in a shitty mood right now. Good. I'm going to keep pressing here. Um, how did you become really rich? Uh, so, uh, well, I'll give you a timeline. I've always been an entrepreneur. I mean, uh, I, first off, let me, let me just preface this. I'm not humble. I think I'm remarkably talented. I think I'm probably in the top 1% of talent globally. But here's the thing. The top 1% puts you in a room that's filled with the, the population of Germany. So I, I, I think I'm in the top, I would think I'm one of the 75 million most talented people in the world. It's uh, a good but number. I'm, but I'm probably in the top 10,000 in terms of economic security. I've, I've, I've been very blessed that way. And a lot of it is just not my fault. I was born a white heterosexual male in California in 1964. What did that mean? It meant that I got to go to an amazing university and got incredible certification for free. My total tuition, undergrad and grad at UCLA and Berkeley, despite being very unremarkable, were $7,000 total for all seven years. So it took me five years. I spent my fifth year at UCLA watching Planet of the Apes reruns and smoking a shit ton of marijuana. 
I came into professional age in the 90s when the internet was booming. And I had a shaved head, which meant I could raise a ton of money with my certification that I got access to for free. I could raise a ton of money uh, in the Bay Area where there was more wealth created between 1991 and 1999 than in all of Europe since World War II. So I got to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, I've had incredible opportunities because I live in America. I could fail and I have failed several times. I've had businesses go bankrupt. I've been divorced. Uh, the only person I, you know, I knew loved me died kind of prematurely, but America is a fantastic place. It loves to forgive and give people second chances. And then in the two thousands, I started, I started companies I got, uh, that were really good. I got lucky. I sold one for 30 million. I sold another for 160 million. And over the last seven, eight years, I've been investing and doubling down in tech companies and my wealth has skyrocketed. And in the last 18 months, and this is the dirty secret of the pandemic, if you're in the top 1% or even the top 10%, you're living your best life. This is what the pandemic has meant for me. It's meant more time with kids, more times with Netflix, and my wealth has doubled. And you think, well, okay, isn't that, isn't that a signal of government doing their job? And I'm like, actually, it's dangerous because this virus has not seen the full-throated capitalist response we're capable of. Within seven days of Pearl Harbor, we converted the largest Chrysler factory into a factory punching out M3 Bradley tanks, and that one factory punched out more tanks than the entire Third Reich during the entire war. What's happened here? We have all this bullshit conflating liberty with selfishness. If Walmart stock had gone down 40%, if Amazon stock had been cut in half, if the NASDAQ had been gone down 30%, when someone walked into a Walmart without a mask, we would have tased their ass and then had a conversation around their liberties. I don't think we've really fought this virus. I, 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 I understand that people want to get back to work. I think there is a balance between, between living your life and some of the mandates. I get that. But I don't think we've really, really felt a sense of urgency. I think the people who control this nation, the shareholder class, it's kind of been stop, stop. It hurts so good. But back to your original question, I got wealthy from the NASDAQ. Uh, I think I'm incredibly talented, and I've also was born at exactly the right place at the right time. The the analog I highlight is uh, my roommate, my freshman year of the fraternity at UCLA, born a white male in 1964, but God reached into his soul and decided that he was gay, and he died alone of AIDS at the age of 32. No, neither of those, my heterosexuality, his homosexuality, neither of those were, were our fault, our choice. So it's just impossible to look at where I am and not recognize that, you know, at the end of the day, I'm just really fucking lucky and, and I'm not humble. I'm not humble. So um, I've amassed more wealth than I ever thought possible. Uh, I feel very fortunate, but it's been through entrepreneurship. It's been through technology. It's been through working my ass off. It's been through resilience and breaking through failure. But more than anything, it's being, in my opinion, being born at the right place in the right time. When you look at the the founder part of it, um, and I have made some jokes in the past where I, I think sometimes when I'll read about something or and I'll feel like the guy wanted to be a founder more than he actually wanted to run a company. Um, was that the case when you felt like out of early tech, late 90s, early 2000s and some of the stuff that you started up? Like, was that part of the tech world as prominent as it is now? Or did guys kind of actually want to start companies to start companies? It was nothing like what it is now. The me, in the graduate class of Haas, the business school I graduated from in 92, two of us were entrepreneurs out of the entire class. It was me and the second was my partner. I mean, no one started companies. I mean, very few people. It was really kind of a niche thing. When I moved to New York in 2000 to start an e-commerce incubator, 
there were just no one even understood what options were. Employees were like, oh, this is a tech company. Isn't this cute? What are options? You want to pay me an option? It just, you, it was difficult to find a law firm that could set a paperwork for, there were no engineers. There were no, I mean, so the ecosystem, people just don't remember what it was like. Uh, it's dramatically changed. In addition, we have this massive idolatry of innovators where the best and brightest are supposed to go start tech companies. And if you're really smart, you drop out of school. If you're really smart, you get an amazing job and you leave Bridgewater or Goldman early to go start a, a website or a SaaS company. So the just the emphasis and the hero worship of innovators is striking. I'm an entrepreneur and people think, oh, it's because you're so talented. My entrepreneurship is a function of my deficiencies. I recognized, I was self-aware enough to realize at Morgan Stanley that I was not successful in big companies. And people say, oh, because you're such a maverick. No, it's not. It's because I was too fucking insecure. Every time people go into a conference room, I thought they must be talking about me. I couldn't, I resented people senior to me that I didn't think were as smart as me. And you know what? That's called work. Everyone has to put up with that bullshit. I, I, I was just not cut out. If you have the skills, people come to my office hours when I say people, kids or my students, and they say, I'm thinking about starting a company. I have an offer from Google. I have an offer from Amazon. I'm thinking about starting my company. I'm like, don't be an idiot. Go to work for Amazon. On a risk-adjusted basis, these platforms are incredible places to work. And if you can put up with the bullshit, if you can navigate the politics, if you can find mentors, if you can play well or nice with others, you know, on a risk-adjusted basis, you're going to build a lot of wealth and a lot of credibility. I didn't have those skills. So most entrepreneurs aren't entrepreneurs because of their talents. They're entrepreneurs because they just immigrated from South Korea and they they don't have any choice but to open a dry cleaner. They're not getting offers from Goldman Sachs. And mine was kind of the same thing. I, I was self-aware enough to a big company. I'm not going to be successful. I don't have the emotional, I don't have the EQ to be successful in a big company. I need to be in charge. I need total visibility and transparency. I resent the notion that I'm, I'm not in charge or control. But I started with another guy, my stallmate at Morgan Stanley. He's now vice chairman. We both ended up in similar places economically. I'm probably a little better off than he is, but he has endured a fraction of the stress I have endured. And a couple times, you know, I kind of lost everything. When my, you know, in 2000 with the dot bomb implosion, I went from in 99 looking at jets to literally like, uh, I remember in 2000 calling my accountant saying like, what am I worth? And he's like, well, let me think, I don't know. You're, you're worth negative 2 million right now. And then in 2008, you know, building back and then getting crushed again in the recession because I wasn't diversified. Can so, you, by the way, um, maybe share with us, because I was listening to one of the pods recently where you kind of allowed yourself during a monologue to divert into this rage of the 2008 crash. What was the worst? Were you running a fund at that point? Like, what was the ultimate, like, how am I going to get out of this moment? The, the thing that struck me was it was the first time I felt scared. And that is, even from a young age, I was a box boy at San Vicente Foods. I was a waiter. I, I used to go to this rich woman's house named Lillian Hellman and carry her up and down her stair. I could always make money. I used to park cars at the Beverly Hills Hotel. I could always make money and take care of myself. And when I moved to New York, worked at Morgan Stanley, I didn't have enough money for a deposit on an apartment. And, and you know, I, I, didn't, I couldn't borrow from my mom. So I slept on friends' couches. I'm a social guy. You know, I always could dance between the raindrops and always figure it out. And then in 2008, when I got run over by the recession, and again, I was not diversified. I went from, I was chairman, I think, of Red Envelope, the company I'd started. 
a bunch of ships, similar to what's happening now, got got stuck 30 miles off of the Long Beach uh, port because of a strike. We had a supply chain problem. We started spitting out the software gun at the warehouse, started spitting out the wrong address. And so we sent gifts to like 40,000 incorrect addresses, which if you think about the complexity and cost of what happens when you send gifts to 40,000 wrong addresses. And then a credit analyst at Wells Fargo, who's probably pretty prescient, said we need to call all in all credit lines because something bad is happening in the credit market. So we went from a stock trading at like eight bucks a share to chapter 11 in like what felt like six weeks, maybe it was eight weeks. So again, I went from, okay, finally I'm back again to, okay, I'm worth nothing again. And unfortunately, my son had the bad judgment, my oldest son had the poor judgment to come screaming out of my girlfriend. And I remember at that time thinking, okay, it's one thing not to have money. It's another thing not to have money when you're 40 and you're responsible for another human being. You feel like I'm a fucking failure. I, and that's the first time I had ever felt that emotion that I had failed on a cosmic level as a father because I was living in New York for the first time. I was kind of worried about money. My kid can't sleep on a couch. You know, my, my, my infant son needs a certain level of economic security. And the reality is we were fine. We were fine, but it, it really fucked with me on like what I'll call a mask. It, it, it made me feel, uh, it messed with my masculinity. I felt like I had let down my family, my new son, myself. And what the lesson from it is the following. Life isn't about what happens to you. Life is about how you respond to what happens to you. And nothing is ever as good or as bad as it seems. I wasn't the genius I thought I was in 1999 or 2007 when I thought I was worth tens of millions of dollars, nor was I the idiot that the market was telling me I was in 2000 and 2008. Nothing is ever as good or as bad as it seems. And you just have to cut yourself some slack when the market hits you hard. And you also have to rein in your horns and have some humility when you're killing it because you're not the genius nor the idiot the markets are telling you at that moment. But that was kind of a, I would say that was arguably like my most, that was the first time in life where I'm like, I'm no longer a kid. I'm a 40 year old and I'm failing. That was very, that really fucked with me, quite frankly. You have been really critical of social media. Um, and I want to tie this into kind of the, the younger people that are listening to us. You know, I've got college and then post-college and then full grown adults that are just into sports as well. But um, I think some people would say, I mean, you're critics, but they say you're alarmist about it, that you make too big of a deal about how dangerous social media is. Is, is that the kind of response that you get? Because you're obviously very, very critical, not only where we're at, but where this is going. Yeah. When I wrote the book, The Four, I remember people reading the book and saying, come on, Scott, you know, Shel Sandberg's going to be the next president. Do you really want to say that she's a liar? You're just jealous. And I said four or five years ago that these companies, that there's trouble in Mudville. These companies are too powerful. I said three years ago, that Mark Zuckerberg was the most dangerous person on the planet. Again, people are like, that's unfair. I said two years ago that Shel Sandberg was terrible for women, that she was lipstick on cancer, got huge amounts of shit and was called a misogynist for that. Uh, I quite frankly, I think the data supports all of my fears. Um, our discourse has become more coarse. Teen depression has skyrocketed since Facebook acquired Instagram. We are we now one a third of each party thinks the other party is their mortal enemy. Um, we have, I, I think, tremendous um, epidemics uh, in teen depression, weaponization of our elections polarization of our society. 
we had a fucking insurrection organized on social media. And the thing is, Facebook didn't cause the insurrection. Facebook didn't cause teen depression. Facebook didn't create income inequality. It's just that social media makes everything everywhere a little bit shittier all the time. And I, I want to be clear. I think the big tech, I think we're net gainers from big tech. If I had a button and I could press it and big tech would evaporate, I wouldn't press the button. I own Apple and Amazon stock. Amazon is the biggest recruiter out of my class. We are net gainers from big tech. The problem is with the word net. We're net gainers from fossil fuels, but we still have emission standards. We're net gainers from pesticides, but we still have an FDA. For some reason, we've decided to let these companies do whatever they want, to let people advertising on their platform and pay in rubles, to have extreme dieting sites suggested to a 15-year-old who is five foot seven and 105 pounds, to let YouTube suggest extreme right-wing white supremacist sites to young men. Two-thirds of extremist sites are suggested by the algorithms to these young men. So uh, my sense is, yeah, everything we feared is, is coming to pass. And I think of all the regrets we're going to have in five years, 10 years, 20 years, whether it's, okay, we, so we, we limited job growth by letting monopolies form and they put small companies out of business. Try and raise money as a search engine, a social media company, or a tech company right now, or, or a tech hardware company. The fastest growing parts of our economy are controlled by monopolies or duopolies. It's, it's, we're going to regret, uh, not having, we're going to regret not having a more competitive environment. We're going to regret having these companies interfere with our elections, but more than anything, we're going to look back on this era, Ryan, we're going to think, how the hell did we let that happen to our kids? Can you imagine at the age of 15, seeing your full self 24 by seven, every stupid thing you said, every outfit that was too revealing, your physical abnormalities or, or awkwardness, constantly evaluated 24 by seven in your face. And anyone who feels for whatever reason, the social need or reward to bully you or come after you. And this is especially harmful among young girls. Boys bully physically and verbally. Girls bully relationally. And we put neutron bombs in their hands. I would rather give my kid at 16 a bottle of Jack Daniels and marijuana than a snap and Instagram account. And I think we're going to look back and say, how the hell did we let that happen to our kids? You have spent a lot of time. I know the algebra wealth, uh, wealth is, is something, the videos that pop up too, um, that are like, there's just so many lines in there that are hilarious. Because I think of my spending habits when I was younger and I didn't have mm -hmm. any kind of income coming in, but you were always mm -hmm. kind of spending your income. I'll never forget too, like when I got one of my first decent deals with ESPN, I told my father, I was like, hey, you know, finally I can start saving some money or whatever. And he was like, you haven't had money now for 10 years as an adult. He's like, you're not going to save a dime. He's like, you're going to get a nicer apartment. You're going to get a nicer car. You're going to step up from gap to gap black label or whatever. You know, like he nailed right. it. He knew, right. he knew exactly what yeah. I was going to do. And he was right. Um, I, I, I loved one of your lines about, you know, being wealthy is not checking your Bitcoin position seven times a day. When, when you talk to, I imagine there's probably some young students that want to pull you aside to go, I don't know if you have a goodwill hunting moment at NYU where somebody like pulls you aside and, and wants to make that impression, but also wants to follow you around and wants to figure out the path to wealth. Um, how, how different is it now for some, somebody who's younger going, okay, if I'm graduating and my number one priority is accumulating wealth, uh, how different is that advice to what you went back through? Well, a lot of it is do as I say, not as I do, because like you, 
I just raised my standard of living to my salary. I think it's important. That's why I think equity or finding a, a job where there's sort of forced savings, either through equity grants or 401ks, you want to acknowledge, you want to come out of the closet and say, I am an alcoholic. And when I say alcoholic, meaning that you're going to spend every current dollar you have. So force yourself to save. So find, put yourself in a position. You know, wealth isn't a function of what you earn. It's a function of what you save. And my dad, between his Social Security and Royal Navy pension, gets $52,000 a year and he spends 40. He's rich. Having passive income greater than your burn is the definition of rich. I have a few friends who make two to five million dollars a year as masters of the universe in investment banking or big time lawyers between their ex-wife, their house in the Hamptons, their NetJets card. They spend it all. They're poor. So, you know, the algebra of wealth is uh, first and foremost is focus. And that is find something you're good at and invest 10,000 hours in becoming great at it. And don't follow your passion, follow your talent, find something you're good at, become great at it. Because if you're great at something, you can make good money at it. And then um, live like a stoic for the first, until you're 40, try and save 10, 20, 30% of everything through forced savings or equity and bust a move to some sort of economic, uh, some sort level of economic security. And then diversify, diversification. You don't need to be a hero. I bought Netflix at 12 bucks a share. It's at $540 now. That's the good news. The bad news is I sold it at 10 to take a tax loss. But it didn't kill me. I had red envelope stock go to zero, but it didn't kill me because by the time I was kind of, I'll call it 35, 40, I started diversifying. And even though I thought, oh my God, red envelope's going to the moon, I'm going to put it all here, I would say, no, I'm going to take a little bit of money and put it in Apple. And then let the most powerful for force in the universe take over. And that is time. And that is the reason I live on the beach and I'm bragging now is because I bought Apple and Amazon in 2008 and I, I just ignored them. I still ignore them. And occasionally I, I look up and I'm like, oh, okay, Apple's up 16X and Amazon's up 12X. You know, it's just the power of time. Anyone over the age of 40 will tell you, time's going to go a lot faster than you think. So when you're early, try and buy some stocks and good companies and then just put them away. You want to go broke, day trade. Go on Robinhood. 80 to 95% of people who day trade lose money. If you bought any five stocks in the S&P 500 since the beginning of the Dow, and you didn't touch them for 10 years, no one has ever lost money. So it's, it's focus, it's stoicism, saving more than you spend, it's diversification, and then it's letting time take over. So the, the, you know, the good news is I, I absolutely know how to get you rich. The bad news is the answer is slowly. And we all think we're going to kill it and have the big payday. I hope you're right. But just in case, just in case, you know, chart a path towards financial security. Figure out a way that you're going to have a million bucks by the age of 50, no matter what happens. And if you start at 22, the path is pretty visible. It's okay. I'm going to save a hundred bucks a month for the first year, then 150 bucks a month. And by the time I'm 25, I'm going to be saving a thousand bucks a month. And by the time I'm 30, I'm going to be saving, you know, you can get there. You can absolutely get there and don't do what I did and assume I'm so fucking talented that at some time it'll start, you know, at some point it'll start raining money when I sell a company or I take it public. That is a really dangerous strategy. So I, I think there's absolutely a way to get there. I think a lot about it. I think about it. it's important to have a code of values. My, my values are capitalism. I work hard. I value money. I like spending it. I like making it. I like competition. I think capitalism is wonderful. Uh, stoicism. Uh, until basically the age of 40, I didn't really spend money. Um, I just saved almost everything. I didn't, uh, I, I didn't really 
need it. And I just worked all the time. And I tried to be fairly unemotional about it. And then uh, finally, atheism for me is really uh, uh, motivating. I think at some point I'll look into my son's eyes and know that our relationship is coming to an end. And it's very empowering for me. I care less about making mistakes. I'm more aggressive. I'm more forthcoming with my emotions, with people I care about. I take more risks. I'm not afraid of public failure, which is key to being an entrepreneur, because I realize we're all going to be dead soon. So you have to have a code. There's an algebra of wealth, and then there's a a code. Everybody needs a code. What are the things that guide you and set your, kind of set your path, if you will? Uh, Before we finish up, I got two things here. Uh, One is, I don't know if it ends up making you unpopular when you point this out, because I, I appreciate how much you have shared with us, like, hey, these are the advantages I had, and I'm not going to deny them because it's real. So we don't even have to debate it. But now mm-hmm. as we've shifted to present day, you've brought this up, that younger men, the numbers are telling you, like younger men right now, the odds don't seem to be in their favor. Is that fair, the way you presented it? 100%. So just as uh, I was born w- with the right outdoor plumbing and the right the right gender and the right ethnicity, the reality is, if you look at the numbers now, men are failing. And nobody want, no one's favorite special interest group, no one looks at young men and thinks they're oppressed. But the reality is, if you look at the numbers, young men are struggling and failing. When we were talking about college, in the next five years, for every one male graduate of college, there will be two female graduates. They're uh, more prone to addiction, higher incarceration rates, higher overdose rates. In addition, you think, well, that's not a big deal. If women finally have their opportunity to get more college degrees, good for them. Seven in 10 high school valedictorians are girls, so they deserve to get in. The problem is there are some really second order, pretty big second order effects here. And that is the scariest stat I saw this year was that in 2008, Pew does this study on youth. The number of men under the age of 30 who had had, never had sex was 8%. And people hear the term sex and their brain goes to different places. Think of it as a key step to establishing a long-term relationship. It was 8% in 2008. 8% of men under the age of 30 were virgins. In 2019, it was 28%. It's probably one in three now. So when you walk down the avenue that is America, there's two women for every one man that have a college degree and half and a third of the men under the age of 30 have never had sex. And you think, well, okay, why is that bad? It's bad because the most violent, unstable societies in the world produce too many of one cohort, and that is young, lonely, broke men. And we are producing too many of them. And the reality is women mate horizontally and up, and men mate horizontally and down. Women with college degrees aren't interested in mating with men without college degrees, so we're creating a generation of loneliness and we're creating a generation of men where the top 10% get to engage in Porsche polygamy. They're having 80% of the sex and the bottom 50% in terms of attractiveness of men have absolutely no mating opportunities. And I think that's bad for society. So I would argue, and I spent a lot of time coaching young men, I would argue that young men, uh, almost more than any group, more, even more Latin men attend college now proportionally versus white men. A lot more women are girls, uh, and I say girls, you know, 17-year-old boys and girls are attending college than men and double the number of graduates. So I think there is an emerging crisis around a cohort that is failing, and that is young men. All right, final thought here, because I announced to the show this week that we were having you on, and they said, hey, make sure you give him shit for his shirts off selfies that he posted. And I went through them. I went through them. I said, give him shit. I'm like, we might have him on again next week. 
So uh, props to you for also making sure people realize that you probably had sex at some point in your life for those those shirts off Not pictures enough. you shared with us. Not enough. <laughs> What's the secret, man? I mean, other than testosterone? Um, <laughs> look, uh, there is a lesson here. So I put, your, uh, Ryan's being generous. I put, a, uh, for my 57th birthday yesterday, I put a bunch of pictures of me shirtless through the years. Like 90% of that shit is narcissism, right? I, I'm proud of my body and I want to show it off. And But 10% of it, there is some rational. I, I think that working out is key to the species. I think you need to be strong. I think you need to walk into any room and be able to think one of two things. I could either kill and eat everybody in this room or I could outrun them. Uh, <laughs> and it, we are, as a species, we are happiest in motion and surrounded by others. You are meant to play sports. You are meant to sweat. You are meant to lift heavy weights and run, run long distances, both, both in the real world and in your mind. It is key to success. You are not renting your body. It is not a loner. Working out, you know, people ask me what my secret is. My fitness secret, it's easy. I work out, I've worked out four times a week for the last 40 years. It has been my, my antidepressant. It has been a ballast for my life. And one of the first things I do when I coach kids is I say, how often do you work out? I am shocked what a fucking hot mess some of these young people are. I'm like, are you kidding? Look at you. And it's not genetics. I'm not saying you need to be ripped. I'm not saying you need to be skinny. You need to be a stronger version of yourself physically and mentally. And one of the first things I do is I find four to six hours, whether it's trading Coinbase or porn or Twitter, and I'm like, we're going to turn this shit off and you are going to work out three or four times a week and you are going to get strong. And because I'll tell you, if you feel strong or the strongest version of you, everything gets better. Everything gets better. You're more secure. You're more kind. You're less depressed. So I think exercise is a gift from God. And uh, it's something I have done my entire life and I think it's just an absolute wonderful thing. I think on the far left, we on the woke have gone crazy with this body positivity bullshit. Uh, you know, the fashion industrial complex wanted us to be anorexic. Now they want us to be diabetic. Uh, I, I just, I, we, on the right, they politicize masking. On the left, we politicize obesity. You need to be in good shape. There, if you have money, there is no reason you shouldn't be a stronger version of yourself. It is the most rewarding thing you can, can, can do that is within your control. How about that for a message on a Friday? Uh, his name's Scott Galloway, the Prof G Podcast. You're going to enjoy it. And I really appreciated the time, man. So thanks for making this for us. Thanks, Ryan. Congrats on your success. This episode is brought to you by Buy. It's Wonder Water. So I was wondering what made Buy so great. And it's actually pretty simple. Buy has antioxidants, electrolytes, and no artificial sweeteners. And the flavors are delicious. For me, it has to be by Zambia Bing Cherry. So for flavorful hydration, choose by. It's Wonder Water. Learn more about by and discover all of the exotic bold flavors at drinkby.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. It's time to ditch your old workout fit. Seriously, just let them go and try Viore clothing instead. Their active wear is unbelievable. Sometimes I wear it and I go, do I look too good? <laughs> I don't want to be at this peak level of awesomeness in their joggers every single day, this is going to be hard to maintain, but that's what the joggers do for you. Whether you're sort of business cash, whether you're just around the house, whether you're working out, whether you're getting on a plane and you're going to be in your seat for a long time, the joggers just give you a hug for the entire flight. It's soft. It's comfortable. You're never going to want to take them off. 
incredible versatility. You can wear it while taking part in different kinds of exercises, running, training, swimming, yoga, and more. Viore yoga class? That just makes sense. The Sunday jogger is the number one go-to. And of course, the core short out now. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash Ryan, R-Y-E-N. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Ryan. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. You never know what's going to happen when you're just sitting in bed trying to fall asleep and you're scrolling and then Instagram's like, maybe Rosilla will like this hoodie. And um, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I think I think we all know that's where it's at. And then I remember I saw this one. I was like, I think I really like that. And then I forgot what it was. And I was mad I didn't screen grab it. And then it magically found me. It found me months later. And it was it was a hoodie from John <laughs> Elliott, uh, which I think is some of the coolest clothing out. This is a little different. It's not normally what we do. But the founder, John, joins us now. And I hit him up and, and made a joke about one of the pieces of clothing. And he hit me right back up and said he knew about the show. So we're going to talk a little bit about him. And we're going to do some life advice at the end. So uh, good morning, man. Thanks for doing this. Hey, absolute pleasure to be on. It's an honor. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for obviously supporting the brand and thanks uh, for the invite. Happy to be here. Okay. So when did you know, um, because I don't know, I'm, I'm out of my depths on this one, uh, on the fashion side of things, although I have a million questions because <laughs> I don't anything, understand everything about it. Like Some of us like our clothes. Some of us don't like our clothes. As a young kid, what were you like? I mean, I was... I was obsessed with uh, the NBA. I was, you know, I was young. My formidable years were really like informed by skateboarding, the Fab Five, Michael Jordan. Then uh, fast forward into like teenage years, Allen Iverson kind of burst onto the scene, still playing baseball. Delino DeShields is like kind of has, you know, interesting style up in Montreal. And these were guys that were like on my wall. Um, I saw, you know, guys who I grew up in San Francisco, guys who had signed, you know, shoe deals with large skateboard companies, kind of break off and uh, start their own companies. And, you know, next thing you know, these guys are doing better than how they were doing signed to the big corporations. And it just kind of a light bulb went on off for me super early that um, that's, you know, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to start my own fashion apparel company. So how does that start? How do you go from, Hey, this is something I want to do. Like you went and worked somewhere else first, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean, from a really early age, um, I knew that like, this is what I was most interested in. I, I, in, in fact, I would like, I think my favorite athlete when I was really young was Bo Jackson. And I felt like, um, you know, Nike, although the Bo campaigns were obviously um, incredible and, and very memorable and left an impact on culture. Um, I felt like he was kind of never, you know, he played, he played in the NFL and um, the MLB. And to me, that was like, you know, he should be at the same level as Jordan. So I think when I was eight, I started sketching sneakers and um, my mom was like, yeah, you should send them to Nike. And, uh, so I sent them a bunch of designs and, you know, eight year old scribble and Nike actually replied and, um, I saved that letter and that was kind of like, Oh my God, like if Nike would actually spend the time to, to write back to me, 
then um, I just started to like become really curious about what uh, my point of view and what my kind of, uh, you know, what my world would look like in, in this big industry. So, yeah, I mean, I, I found my favorite store in San Francisco, went and begged them for a job. It was mostly for the discount. And, uh, you know, that was in my early 20s. And, and that's how I started. So how did the John Elliott brand begin? I mean, it's, it has to probably go back to the discount, you know, like when, when you're in your early twenties, you're going out all the time, like five nights a week, want to look good, trying to meet girls. Um, you know, you end up just consuming so much. And so I, uh, I moved from San Francisco to New York. You have to pack up everything you own and you realize like how much of your disposable income, even with a nice discount, you've wasted on stuff that you've worn one or two, two, three times max. And this is like, you know, before social media era. Um, so like, you know, now I'm sure there's guys who, you know, you buy something that's probably super flashy. You post it on the gram. Like you're like, dude, can I wear that again? So it was kind of, um, this idea of like <laughs> trying to build a timeless look, trying to build something that felt like a uniform, something that really stood out. Like when I, you know, moved from New York to LA a year later, and I whittled the, you know, my wardrobe down even further and made that edit. That's when the light bulb kind of clicked. Okay, like there's a proposition here for for my version of a of a modern uniform. And, um, you know, it's, it was completely unbranded, completely, um, you know, no artwork. And when I kind of uh, explained my vision to either like cohorts in the industry or family and friends, everyone was like, you're insane. You're crazy. Like, don't do that. And that was kind of like, okay, yeah, this is good. Like I should, you know, I don't, didn't really respect what you had to say anyway. So I'm definitely going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's, look, I know that there's, there's a lot of differences in, in both of our paths, but there's a commonality in every person that does something that's a little bit different. And there's actually something I'm working on. And it was amazing when I started off, how many people I would tell now, granted I'm slinging draft beers to people going, I'd like to host a talk show. I'm like, I could see <laughs> right. myself doing that. And people were like, what are you talking about? Like right. you're, it's almost over for you. You didn't go to school for it. You didn't do any of these things. I'm like, nah, I think I could do that. I think I could do that. And I remember like a couple of younger guys being like, that'd be awesome. And like, they were the worst <laughs> guys to listen to because they just liked me because I was an older, cool guy. And then right. the older people, which I will, I will tell you is a consistent theme throughout is there's kind of this weird, I don't want this younger person to succeed at something that I was too afraid to ever try. So even though it's great to talk to people, it's also kind of a waste of time when you really decide <laughs> that you know what you're going to do because there's going to be more people that tell you not to do it, either because they actually care about you and they think the odds are against you. But the larger group is the group that's like, I actually don't want to see you succeed at something rare because I never took the chance. It's more about them than it is your idea. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to specify that, like, you know, my dad and my brother were the two biggest, you know, forces behind me going for it. And they, they pushed me. But yeah, I mean, when you're first starting out and you have this grandiose vision of what um, what you can achieve and you're really you're set on doing it, and then you get a couple months into your journey, that's when shit gets real and you get really tested. And you know, all of a sudden, you're making decisions on what you can eat and uh, you know, like putting money aside for gas. You know, that's when you start listening to Meek Mill and 
talking to yourself crazy like you're you know an inmate like you know i got this kind of shit like that's when that's when stuff like you know you really kind of have to have some tough conversations with yourself and stay committed okay then how does it go from i would say in a very short amount of time i, I don't know i don't know what the timelines of these things are from okay we're doing t-shirts we're doing jeans we're doing hoodies we're doing timeless we want um a higher end version of of kind of the just throw something on deal and now all of a sudden you're invited to fashion week or you go, I don't know how fashion week works to feel free. How does that transition happen from the inspiration, the product to holy shit, we're a big deal already. That's a, I mean, that's a great question. And it's kind of, it happens and you don't even totally realize it's happening as it's going. But you know, I, we start, I started the brand with my best friend from high school. Um, you know, I moved to LA to take a gig working wholesale and I, I had this idea of what I wanted to do. So I, I was, I asked him if I could stay with him for a couple weeks, the couple weeks turned into a year and I was just banking every paycheck that I had. So we started the company with $30,000. Um, and you know, when I told people who were like working downtown and manufacturing, how much money they had, people were basically like, you could go and set that money on fire in a driveway and just you know, have a nice night. And that would be a better use of those funds than trying to start your own thing. So like, I would say that, you know, we, we started with a very, very limited um, set of materials. It was denim, uh, jersey for t-shirts and French terry for like sweatshirts and sweatpants. And um, I listened to an interview uh, that Jim Rome had done with Bernard Hopkins, the boxer. And he was talking about his uh, experience in prison. And how um, he would make himself a grilled cheese sandwich every day, steal a piece of bread in the morning, cheese at lunch, bread at night, put it in a shoebox with tin foil, warm it up when lights went down, boom, that got him through each day. And Rome, you know, talked about how that was like fascinating. He was like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like inmates, they innovate with nothing. And so I started to like look into this idea of prison innovation. And I, and I was like, Look, man, I'm not getting emails from jerks in corporate America right now. Like, I'm I'm doing this on my own terms. All I have to do is innovate with three these three materials, and I think it really pushed me to kind of create, you know, honestly things that were not available in the marketplace at that time. So it was a new approach to sweatpants, a new approach to sweatshirts. You know, thinking about how to make T-shirts that would layer with this uniform and. Um, that innovation that came from just this limited set of resources and materials kind of forced a really new flavor in the fashion industry. And all of a sudden, the um, gatekeepers in New York, they really were interested in the story and they're really interested in the approach, this untrained approach. And um, they got excited. And so, um, yeah, like by season two, we were in eight stores around the country. Um, one of them was in, um, was in Cleveland, Ohio. And I remember I got a call from this guy who texted me first and he said he was LeBron James stylist. And I was like, sure. Like, you know, who's this person playing a prank on me? Like, sure. Like, okay. Yeah. Right. And I took the call and he was like, um, he was like, yeah, basically, um, you know, the NBA all-star weekend is coinciding with, uh, with, you know, New York fashion week you know, basically like at the same time in February. And I think it was back in like 2012 or 13, you know, you guys should think about doing a fashion show. And at that time I was sitting in my late grandmother's uh, Honda Accord from 1989. You know, we had like no money 
And I was like, yeah, okay. We, yeah, let's do it. You think you can get me up to Nike? Let's, I want, I want to try to see if we could like, you know, have Nikes walk on the runway and, um, and basically just willed our way. And like, it was, you know, after that we won GQ best new menswear designer. And, um, it was just like, it was like the rocket ship just took off, but it was, uh, you know, obviously there was like, I think good ideas and, and a l- tremendous amount of hard work, you know, driving around downtown LA and manufacturing myself. But um, it was really, I think, due to orig- an, an original approach. Okay, let's get back to the LeBron part of it, because I've seen your Instagram page where it clearly like there's some kind of relationship there. Is, is he your guy? Like how often is there contact there? Because I, I could tell he would like your stuff, obviously. Yeah, no, I mean, LeBron is, you know, he's, uh, he's a friend. He's an amazing, uh, he's been an amazing, amazing person in my life. Um, you know, we, we collaborated on, um, a shoe for him called the icon. Um, and it was kind of like his, uh, first like off court shoe, uh, that, uh, basically, um, you know, I got tasked to do that was one of, that was like my second Nike collaboration. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I've been, I've been to, you know, to China with LeBron twice, getting to see what that reaction is like in China is just, uh, it's monumental. He, uh, you know, we, when we opened our first flagship store on Melrose Avenue, um, he, he came for the opening event. Um, he's just, he's been a really, uh, he's changed my life. He's been an incredible friend. He, I think he's definitely a fan of the brand. I'm obviously, um, like humbled to even say that I know him and, um, and you know, he, he's a fan of what we do. Yeah. Right. I don't want to make it weirder. Like, yeah, if you show me text exchanges and stuff, uh, it's very, <laughs> it's very clear that he's a fan of the brand and that you guys work on stuff. The next level up before we get to the fashion advice questions here is, is Kanye. Did he just show up? Like how did, <laughs> how did the Kanye connection happen with uh, what you guys are doing? Um, Kanye. So I, um, Kanye kind of took a liking to what we were doing, the approach early on. Kanye is, I mean, he's, he's a genius on so many levels, but, um, he saw what we were doing and I think he saw the approach and there was obviously a, it sparked his interest. Um, I remember, you know, we were very early in the brand and I walked into a store in Soho and it was like raining and, uh, the salesperson knew who I was. It was like one of the first times someone had like recognized me and he seemed really nervous talking to me. And I was like, bro, like, what's your deal? You know, like I'm running like this tiny company. Why do you care? And, um, I like go walking down the stairs into like this kind of lowered like pit area where they have like footwear and bags and whatnot. And I'm trying not to slip, uh, because it was raining outside on these marble steps. And I look up and, I understood instantly why this guy, you know, couldn't speak. There's Kanye West. And he's like, you know, sit down. And I'm like, like, oh, shit. So uh, we sat there and talked and he wanted to know what jacket I was wearing. I introduced myself. He had heard of the brand. Uh, We kind of stayed in contact. And then the next time I saw him, I was at Equinox in Soho. And um, I was on a treadmill and he was getting on a stationary bike and he waved me over. He was like, hey come over like let's you know let's work out together and uh I <laughs> wait 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 are you talking about like the one on prince street over there yes. yeah, yeah right yeah. so so okay yeah, so, you know it <laughs> yeah I, that's the one i go to when i'm there all the time yeah. so um shout out to some of the trainers but anyway when i 
I just want to know, wait a minute, Kanye's like, what are you doing chest and buys today? Or what are you doing? <laughs> like, what's that like? I knew this was going to be like right up your alley. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I was just trying to get some cardio in, you know, I think it was um, probably my second fashion week. Um, and obviously nerves are high. So you got to get a workout for me, got to get a workout morning workout in get the blood flowing. And, um, yeah, Kanye walked in and next thing you know, we rode the stationary bike for probably like two hours and just people filtering in and out, you know, just a line of people to come and, and talk to him. And, uh, and yeah, the next thing you know, kind of, uh, I invited him to, to my show. He told me what he was working on. Um, I had no idea if he was actually going to show up and, uh, and yeah, like, uh, you know, day of the show, like, five minutes before the show is about to start, get a text, Hey, Kanye's on his way. And, uh, that was another kind of like life changing moment. Kanye, another amazing person, amazing human. Uh, one of just the most brilliant people that I've ever been around the way he thinks, how, how ahead of people he is, how fast he is. Um, he's just, I mean, yeah, there's, you know, people like Kanye and LeBron, they, you don't get to that level by accident. There's a uh, true, genius um in both of them being six eight two sixty helps too <laughs> <laughs> i mean absolutely <laughs> yeah no, I mean, but when you mix that with with when, brilliance, right. i think <laughs> you know you know uh josh smith was six eight two sixty two not an ambassador of the brand apparently How about that? <laughs> oh man i should take shots at josh smith he had a good playoff game for the <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's let's get to some of the emails because you are a busy guy. You've got a lot of stuff going on in your life. And so I don't want to take up more of your time. We could do a longer one. I mean, I have so many questions about Fashion <laughs> Week. I'll just bug you. I'll just bug you a couple months from now here. Yeah, um, we, can, we can do it again. We'll figure it out. Okay, so let's do... I have... I think we have four pretty good ones here and, and some, go. dec some decent variety. Okay, here we go. Fashion life advice. How to dress when you're a dad. 3363250. Yeah. Hair's going, so it's been buzzed. Big biker, no pun intended. No idea what I can bench. All right, we got it. Okay. Um, been working from home since March of 2020. Wardrobe's been Lululemon ABC pants, plain t-shirts, the odd flannel or shorts, depending on the season. We have a toddler and uh, are through the hells of sleep training, teething, and potty training. I look in the mirror now and feel disappointed in myself. Growing up, it felt <laughs> like my dad had a style when he dressed. Not a style in a sense of being hip, but style that came from busting his butt, running his own business, raising four kids, and not giving a shit about people's opinions. Just wore stuff that seemed to fit together, minus the stuff that he wore that was from baseball tournaments he played in. That stuff's actually kind of vintage now, so uh, you might want to try <laughs> to see if that's still around. Uh, but it just worked. How do I find some stuff that works for me? I've never been one to drop hundreds of thousands on a new wardrobe i don't want to roll around in a three-piece suit um i do feel i do feel like i like pants and a t-shirt or selling myself short <laughs> my wife dresses way better than me and i feel too proud to admit i pull us down when we go out so look not looking to walk a runway but it'd be nice to meet up with buddies go out with my wife or even when i go to the school pickup and not feel like a slob i mean you know i think the first thing for someone like that is Look, if you've been in your house for that amount of time, you gotta you gotta be get yourself excited about going out. You know, I think all that applies to all of us. So, um, and you, the first thing is going to be comfort. I I would suggest um, keeping the Lululemon and the you know whatever else like really keep that for your house and get yourself some new stuff when you're going to step out. Um, you know, I think 
fit is key, making sure that you don't have something that um, you're not going to feel comfortable in, in terms of fit. So I, I, I would tend to stay on the, the baggier side for bottoms. If you're into biking, that to me was the most interesting thing in that uh, kind of email. You know, chase your curiosities there. You know that space. I'm not sure if he's referencing like, you know, hogs like Harleys or if he's, you know, a road biker. Not sure. I think there. he meant road bike. I don't think there's any gang affiliation with this. <laughs> okay. So then, you know, like, uh, what's the most aspirational, um, you know, road bike? Is it, you know, I, I'm not a aficionado, but, you know, splurge there see what they got you know maybe that's that's your uh that's the thing that you're interested in find the pinnacle of the road bike and uh and and spend some money on stuff there because that's what you're most interested in but but make sure that the rest of what you're packaging it up with you know fits well and and you're comfortable in it but yeah ditch the ditch the synthetic fabrics that you're living in in your house and uh get yourself excited to step out yeah, the athleisure wear comfort level that a lot of us have gone to, and I'll admit that I have as well. I mean, you just went the last year and a half and you go, am I going to throw on shorts again? That, you know, but yeah, the thing is your AAU shorts are like all timer and you want to talk about yeah. lounging and feeling good if you want to wear the lining in them too. Um, you guys hit it out of the park with those. Hey, I appreciate that. I I really do. And look, I mean, I think there's a a way to mix that in tastefully that is going to be um like a a pillar of your wardrobe forever. And especially now coming out of the pandemic, I think it's more acceptable than ever. I think if you think back like 20 years ago to think that you could wear, you know, sweatpants to a meeting in person, I think people would have said you're out of your mind. But now, I think if you have a pair of sweatpants that actually fits well and you could dress, you know, dress up with a, a sweater or with, um, you know, something that's like, you know, a oversized button up, like it's not out of the question. You could put it together in a way that is sensible. You know, my one thing advice is like, don't wear high tops with sweatpants, the bulky high top with a kind of slim fit cuff, I think is a really tough look. That's just a personal pet peeve. We can probably move on to the next one. Sorry. It's <laughs> a little rant. <laughs> yeah, because I would I would also push back on some of our younger guys being like, this doesn't mean go out and buy sweatpants and wear them to your next interview either. It would just be that, you know, <laughs> sweatpants are, are definitely more sweatpants used to mean you were out of work. And that's definitely not the case now. All right. Um, uh, this, are you had given up? <laughs> yeah, right, right. And now I I mean, now you can pull it off. But you better be in a, if you're going to show up to a meeting, they better want something from you, not the other way around. If you're wearing sweatpants, that's that's a bit of a rule there uh, that we just Agreed. came up with. All right. Uh, this is a really interesting one. I like this. OK, um, 511-215. Uh, late last year, my mom, a costumer wardrobe uh, in the movie industry, 20 years, seamstress, 30 plus years, myself, artist and graphic designer, collaborated on a jacket idea. She wanted to have artwork I did made into fabric. She then created a pattern, sewed a jacket. I get compliments everywhere I go when I wear it. Men and women express interest in wearing one like it, which is good news because I'd like to go the genderless route with sizing for different body types. Branding wise, I've got some knowledge from my background in terms of logo, website, Etc. Uh, we may even have a connection who lives down the street from my mother to produce on a larger scale than just her. My question is, beyond logo, website, trying to blast your shit on social media and bugging your friends to share it, what are good early moves for getting it off the ground? Advisable sources of funding. Thoughts on trying to go genderless and environment, environmentally responsible. I want to be a part of a better standard of business, uh, a better business person whose goals extend beyond merely profits, but also into setting an example of how responsible practice can be a uh, viable business. Any advice would be appreciated. Whew. 
I mean, that's a lot. I would say narr- narrow the scope down a little bit. Like, you know, it's, a, you know, it, you don't need to, you don't need to solve every issue um, all at once. I think, um, you know, the fact that you have something that makes you feel good, that you get compliments on that showcases your creativity um, when you're, when you're out, that's, that's your spark. So I would say make another jacket for yourself and uh, start to share it and, you know, chase your curiosities, but don't worry about, uh, you know, the, I think the sustainability um, aspect of fashion is like an incredibly important element of um, where the industry needs to go. But when you're first starting out, you don't even truly have a business plan yet. And you like kind of been struck with this spark of creativity don't give yourself reasons to not get going. Like just go. Um, that's what I would say. So there's a lot there that are feel like barriers to um, to entry. I would say just continue to create. Um, I think you ha- clearly have some resources uh, between uh, your family and uh, the people around you that would uh, give you kind of a, a head start. You know, almost over a lot of people, and that's that's a that's amazing. So chase that, continue to create and see what happens. Um, but don't, don't get uh, hung up in like these existential questions that could keep you up at night and take you away from your focus. Good answer. I like that. Narrow the focus at first. Um, but I like that he was thinking about all these different things. I imagine when you're just as a designer, you drive around and you think of things constantly and then maybe you bring it back to your manufacturers. And the, I mean, there's got to be a line where they go, hey, John, somebody's going to wear this, man. <laughs> Like somebody's, yeah, somebody's I mean, actually going to wear this. You can definitely, you can go crazy. I mean, um, I'll never forget. I was driving down La Cienega and this guy just like, it was like unreal the way this guy cut me off. It was like, he just didn't like give a fuck. And um, he was driving a Bentley and he had like the, you know, license plate wrap that said like uh, something yacht club. And I was like, oh my God. This guy fucking has a yacht as well. This guy is a, is a member of a fucking yacht club. And it was like so hysterical to me that this guy just, this is the way he lived his life that um, I just, you know, I literally getting cut off in traffic turned into this idea of like, huh, I, you know, what is the pinnacle of luxury? It's like watching water. Like that is the pinnacle of like what we all strive to do when we're on vacation. Just sit there and watch water. Like, you know, in the, so I came up with this imaginary yacht club and I, you know, basically did a whole collection with all these like bouncy silks and, um, kind of reflective fabrics and whatnot. And it was a runway smash. Um, it didn't sell very well, but, uh, yeah, that was definitely a time where, you know, you can take a, a real life instance and build a world around it. And, um, in that particular case, it wasn't terribly commercial, but, you know, I learned from it. I enjoyed that part of the story as much as any of this, just because it's so different. Like, I would hope people that are listening to this appreciate it be like, wow, that's how that guy got to all these different places. All right. So another email here is from uh, this one says nephew Kyle, and it says how to make an America was fucking awesome. <laughs> there's no there's I, no I, que- Kyle. Do you want to get in here? <laughs> that wasn't me. That it was awesome, but that was not me. Was that about oh, you? Okay. Was that about you? John? <laughs> I didn't watch that show. You know, I, I watched oh, the first episode you're of that show. you're killing Kyle. You're killing I, Kyle. I watched the first episode of that show, and I, I realized that it was going to be too close to what I wanted to do. 
that it was going to set expectations for me in my roadmap. And I, it was like, uh, it was like warning signs started to go off in my head. Like, yo, you need to turn this off because if, if you even let this Hollywood version of what your actual journey is going to be like set expectations for how your experience is going to go, then you're fucked. So I, I didn't watch it. I, by the way, you're right. There was something that came out and everybody's like, have you watched this yet? And I, I'd worked on something that was going to be similar. And I go, I can't watch it. I also remember once a 311 VHS that I had in college where they were walking around in the street and they asked this guy that was like a street performer. I don't know if he was part of an HOA, if you get my drift. Um, <laughs> but they were like, what do you listen to 311? He goes, I don't listen to anything. They're like, you're a musician. And you don't listen to anything. And he was like, no, why would I do that? He's like, I don't want, I make my own music. So I don't know. Some similarities there. We're all we're all thinking upstairs. Uh, Kyle, did you have any questions? Are you going to have something here? Because I know that you'd like maybe step your game up a little bit, but you're on the you're on the thick double C side. You know, I can't fit in some of the jeans myself, you know, so I'm not I'm not judging. But go ahead, Kyle. So the first guy was like his stats are pretty close to mine, minus the balding. And I'm not as old as him. So that's that's kind of good here. Let me ask you about this. Big fan of Harley Davidson. (laughs) Love their love. Harley Davidson. Like the like the button up shirts and all that stuff. Is that weird if I don't ride motorcycles? Seems like it's pretty bad for the life expectancy. Is that weird? Should I find something else? Also, can I fit in your stuff? You got two X. Uh first to answer the last question, we do have two X. Go check out the website. Um, would appreciate that. And then, you know, Harley Davidson is uh I, no, it's not weird at all because if you think about it, Harley Davidson is such an incredible brand. They, I guarantee you, they sell more pencils and t-shirts and mugs than they sell bikes. Um, but people buy that because they have, you know, it's like the Oakland Raiders. Um, it's the same sure. kind of brand. It stands for something. It signifies an attitude. So, um, you know, if that's what you're into, then um, no, I think that's, um, you know, that, that's, that's all good. I'm basically just getting tired of saying no when dudes ask me if you ride. I think I might just start to lie and I just need to know the specs of the my imaginary bike. But uh <laughs> I'd rather just get you a bike to keep to keep this Kyle thing going. Like that part of Veep where where Kent is like part of a weekend gang and they were like, We'll save it for later, brothers. Um, I would I, I want all this to happen. So let's focus on the bike and keep wearing the shirts. Saruti, did you have a question? Because I know Saruti's got a little European thing going on. Um, no, actually, I want to circle so, back on something he said before. So I just bought a pair of the Nike Blazer mid-77s, which I'm obsessed with. But, John, you're telling me that I can't wear those with, like, the jogger sweatpants. And that's kind of what I've been rocking. So what am I supposed I to mean, do here? Is that just, not a good the, look? Look, you're headed on a good path. I, all you got to do is just switch it out for some low tops. I think, um, you know, the balance of, if you think about it, the taper in the leg and then it expands back out. Um, for me personally, someone who spends a lot of time doing this, I think the lower profile shoe is probably a uh, smarter way to go, but that's just my two cents. We talking like a sneaker? Like what are we talking for when you, when you say that? Um, I think like, you know, a, a court shoe. So something like, uh, you know, a common project or a vintage Nike, you could even, if you wanted to, uh, you know, go like, uh, I wouldn't suggest Vans because like that is kind of puts you in mall territory, <laughs> but something in like that, uh, that shape. Okay. Fair. <laughs> so what do I do with my Nike blazers? I just bought these things. I thought I was cool. 
Are they that's out? where you need. That's where no, no. That's where you need to grab a pair of denim. That's perfect. Okay. That's perfect okay. for jeans. Uh, I think that works with cargo pants. Anything oversized with some pockets, you're good there. Good. Okay. See, now we're warmed up. Guys are letting it fly. Uh, what are some other <laughs> things you see from? Okay, what's your stance on over forty? And you're like, hey, dude, you're kind of older now. Because I have some stuff that's definitely younger. People don't seem to think I'm as old as I am, which I'm not quite sure if that's a compliment or an insult. Um, depends on the week, I guess. But there's an LA thing too where I've noticed. I go, these guys are sixty and they're just in like they're twenty five years old. So it's way more acceptable here. Northeast, you get punched in the face, but it's it <laughs> seems like the boundaries are being pushed of how old you can be to wearing younger stuff. Where are you with that evolvement lately? I, I think, um, I think having a strong sense of, uh, like personal interest as far as like, you know, knowing yourself, knowing your body type clearly and, and what fits proportionately will work for you. Um, that's how you start. And then I think, you know, dressing smart is, is always a, a safe play. I think, you know, not, not exactly like going full tailoring, but you know, if you look like classic sixties, like almost like Ivy, like Ivy, uh, league kind of like approach, you know, mixing that with more modern sportswear. So, you know, if you're mixing that with like a, you know, an oversized button up mix with, you know, basketball shorts in the warmer months in LA, like that's going to work. Um, I think, you know, taking your personality, but thinking that like, okay, I'm going to push it through a smarter lens is a, a very timeless play. So, you know, I, I wouldn't, um, I, I think any trend is super dangerous unless you're like an A-list celebrity and that's just what you do. And you have a stylist that's just filtering you, you know, uh, new stuff on a weekly basis. Um, but if you're, you know, just, um, a regular guy like myself, then I think, um, you know, trying to, to play it smart, play, play it like a little classic and timeless. That's, that's something that, you know, you'll see photos of yourself in 10 years and you're not gonna, you're not gonna regret. John, I can't thank you enough for this, man. It's, uh, it was cool to kind of have this fast forward relationship where we hit each other up. You got back to me, you wanted to come on, you knew who Kyle was. So that made everybody's day. And more importantly though, for anybody that does their own thing, and you know, I said this with a guy that I'm involved with in some athletic gear that I'm really excited about, but to to thread that needle of of cool is really delicate. You know, it's 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 like, hey, is this cool? And then it's like it just sort of has to become it. And sometimes it's not even up to you, you know? And and you did that in a very short amount of time, uh, really, really well. So I'm I'm happy for you, even though again, we just kind of got to meet each other here. So uh, congrats to everything, man. Well, I really appreciate you having me on. I know we just got to know each other. I've, I've been a fan of the podcast for a long time, so I feel like I know all you guys well. Um, I just, you know, really appreciate you guys inviting me on. And uh, and yeah, hope, hope to do it again. That's John Elliott. I hope you enjoyed this today because it was a little different. I'm, I know we're all kind of proud of it, but again, the way the scheduling worked out, this is how we had to have these three things in because we still have a bunch of taped ones that we haven't even used yet. So there you go. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks to Kyle. Thanks to Steve. Dilfer, Cannell, next week. Bye.